19 verses 1 through 10. Jesus, he entered, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the house, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, I the half of my good I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Good morning. You all may be seated. Go ahead. Uh, it is a pleasure to, to be here with you this morning. Um, Pastor Mark and Pastor Dave are off on a elders retreat with, with Brother Paul Landers and his wife Sherry as well. Uh, they're praying together this morning, this weekend, and they are searching the face of God to see uh, what the Lord has for us uh, this coming uh, fiscal year of 2020. Uh, so if you would please partner with me in praying for them, that that time would just be edifying and glorifying to them. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul Brooks. Uh, I'm a servant son here at Northridge Life, and it's going to be my pleasure to, to share with you what God has for you from the Word this morning. So I'm going to pray us up, and we're just going to dive right in to what God has for us today, okay? So, uh, Father, we love you. Lord, you are so very, very good, God. Um, thank you, Father, for your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, God, that is living and active, capable of cutting straight to the quick of our hearts, Lord, of changing us from, from slaves and orphans into sons and daughters this morning, Lord. And I thank you, God, that, that your word never goes out and comes back void, that it always accomplishes exactly what you have set forth for it to do. Uh, Lord, I pray for our elders this morning, God. I pray that you would be with them. Holy Spirit, would you minister to their hearts? Would you stir their affections for Jesus this morning and, and just make them fall heavenly, head over heels in heavenly love with you and Jesus this morning, Lord? Would you edify them, encourage them, and strengthen them during their time uh, together, Lord, and just bring them back safely to us, Lord, uh, and uh, let them return to their work joyfully, Father, as, as we shoulder to shoulder uh, bear the weight of bringing forth the kingdom of God here on earth together, Lord. I thank you for them. I thank you for the ministry that you placed over them, Lord, and just grant them protection. Give us eyes to see from your word this morning and ears to hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, the thing that I pray the Lord most impresses upon your heart this morning for our time together, um, the, the focal point of our time together this morning is that Jesus changes everything. If you remember nothing else I tell you today, I want you to remember that. You see, our text this morning gives us a story of a first century Jew who goes from, from death to life, from faith in a God of his own making to faith in the true and the living God, Jesus Christ. See, verse 2 of our text tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Now, this title is found nowhere else in the entirety of the New Testament. 
And this is probably because of the city where our story takes place. It's a a well-known piece of dirt called Jericho. It's a city that was made famous back in the day by, by Joshua, who had one of the greatest military victories in the history of Israel, if not, in fact, the history of the world. And since that time, it has become a strategic stronghold for the Roman Empire. See, Jericho was a, was close to the Jordan River and it benefited from some very significant Roman upgrades. It had aqueducts, uh, a monumental winter palace, and, and even a hippodrome. That's a fancy word for a, a chariot racetrack back in the day, right? Okay, so Jericho was also known as a, a huge economic center for the balsam trade. How many of y'all in here love essential oils? It's a key ingredient in that stuff, right? And other perfume products. So therefore, if there was to be a chief tax collector found anywhere in the Roman Empire, they most certainly would be found here in the city of Jericho. So Zacchaeus' title and position would have brought him great wealth, would have made him a man of great importance in the Roman sphere of the community, although his job would not have left him very well loved or liked by the actual people of Israel. You see, Rome had to exact taxes in order to pay for this ridiculous, lavish lifestyle that they led. They had to pay for those building projects, those aqueducts, and especially their roads. And this was no easy task. So they they enlisted the services of local assets that knew the area and knew the people quite well so that no one would escape giving Caesar what was Caesar's. And as such... Tax collectors were considered the lowliest of the low, the dastardliest of scoundrels. See, they were authorized with the sword of Rome to take these taxes and even use deadly force if necessary. And whatever they collected over what Rome demanded, they were allowed to keep for themselves. And often they would, they would take from their fellow Jews until they literally had nothing left to give. As a result of these barbaric and fiendish practices, these men were outcasts, deeply despised and, and hated with impunity. They were considered the lowliest of the low, rejected from the temple and the core of Jewish society. These men were banned from participating in even the most basic functions of Jewish life. Their allegiances had left them painfully alone. And this man, Zacchaeus, well, he was the chief of all of them. Zacchaeus was a man without a country. You see, the Jews didn't want him because he was a traitor, a turncoat. And the Romans didn't trust him for the same reason. He was as lost as a goose in a snowstorm without God or a true friend in the world. He had no country, no God, no hope. And no place to truly call his home. He was also rich, text says, and he was rich. He had a lot of money and stuff. Now, I want you to hear me. There's nothing inherently wrong, okay, with being rich. There's nothing wrong with having nice things or a nice car or a nice house. It's not having wealth and resources that determines whether or not your life is producing good fruit. But rather what we do with that wealth and with those resources. And this is why Jesus tells us that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because money means independence. And contrary to the American mythos, independence, rugged independence, is not always a good thing, especially when it drives us away from our Creator. Zacchaeus put his hope, his faith, his security the vast, in the vast amount of money he had procured for himself by rendering those around him destitute. For Zacchaeus, being rich was a problem. His lifestyle tells us that his mindset was as such that if you had enough money in the world, then you didn't need anybody, or even God for that matter. Essentially, Zacchaeus' God was security, and he worshipped his God through money and his status as a chief tax collector. He made great sacrifices to worship his God as well. We We all have been created 
to be worshipers. All of us. And Zacchaeus, he's no different. He clearly placed himself on the throne of his life. He's calling his shots as he sees them. And we see this play itself out in his life in two arenas, okay? The first, his work and occupation. You see, he doesn't necessarily worship his work, although that's not out of the realm of possibility. But rather, he worships the God of security through his work. The end goal of Zacchaeus' work is clearly to bring home the biggest, fattest paycheck he can in order to buy the biggest house, the nicest horses, the finest jewelry, the biggest vats of wine. His ultimate aim is to store up as many treasures for himself as he can. He's investing in stuff. And we all know that stuff and money, of all things, is the most unstable of resources. Money is constantly coming and going. See, he's building himself a life, trying to secure a future to build a castle on shifting sands. And Zacchaeus has chosen to, to swindle, rob, cheat, and even betray his own countrymen to earn money to build a life that won't last. He's investing in sin, and that sin investment is not working out for him so well. You see, the big house feels awful empty when you're the only one living in it. And all the money in the world can't buy you true relationship, true community, true companionship. Oh, don't get me wrong. Lots of people showed up to the ridiculously awesome parties that he threw. I'm, I'm sure of that. But, but at some point, the party was always over. And he'd be left alone with his mountainous stuff, empty, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled. This goal of building an empire of wealth to himself left him separated from the true and the living God. And instead of choosing to place his hope and his trust for security in the one place that it can never be betrayed and never be forsaken, he chose to cast his lot in with money and things, the most fluid and unreliable of resources. The money and status of the chief tax collector kept him surrounded with people who wanted things from him. But deep down, he knew that the moment that his money and his position were gone, so too would they be. Zacchaeus' work drove his view of people, and this is a very unhealthy and very lonely worldview that he's developed. His relationships, you see, This is the second place where it plays itself out in his life, in his relationships with people. They were all about himself. You see, he was a a chief tax collector. He only hung out with people who were empty and broken like him. And he only hung out with them if they could somehow serve his agenda. You see, he didn't hang out with them because he wanted to necessarily, but because of the choices that he made, the lifestyle choices he was leading, these are the only people in the world that would have anything to do with him. This forced him, this way of life, caused him to see people transactionally as a commodity in terms of what they can do for him and what he could do for them to make himself feel important. Zacchaeus has turned his relationships into transactions of tit for tat. You do this for me and I'll do that for you and then we'll be okay. Healthy relationships are interdependent. Okay? That means that both parties can mutually depend on one another for help when they need it, but they can still maintain their individual autonomy. That means that they can be perfectly fine by themselves. These relationships are built on mutual trust, respect, love. Zacchaeus is incapable of that kind of a relationship. You see, he's incapable of this kind of relationship because he views people as things, and he's chosen to prioritize things over people. This is the way that he's, he's chosen to live his life. But God is still God. Jesus is still Lord of all, even when we choose not to follow him. We see in verses 3 and 4 God's sovereign hand guiding the life 
of Zacchaeus. Even in his rebellion, God is working all things in his life to get him to where he is right now in this moment. Look with me in verse 3 of our text. It says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. You see, Zacchaeus thinks that he's the driving force in his own life. He has no idea of what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, where he says, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, Zacchaeus doesn't know that he, he isn't seeking Jesus, but rather that Jesus is seeking after him. See, C.S. Lewis once said in Mere Christianity that religion, okay, is this, is this God, is man searching for God, right? Okay, we're all trying to find Jesus. But Christianity doesn't work that way. Christianity, as C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, Christianity is God searching for man. Jesus is the one stirring his curiosity. Jesus is the one drawing him into him. Look at, look with me at the rest of the verse. It says, but on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Jesus put the crowd there. Jesus is the creative power that made him short. So God made him short, okay, and put the crowd this way so that he would have to change his vantage point, his perspective to see who God was. God knew all the things that Zacchaeus was going to do that led him up to this moment in his life. Now, now don't get me wrong. God knew the sin choices Zacchaeus was going to make, but Zacchaeus is 100% responsible for those sin choices, Charles Spurgeon said it rather eloquently once, and I'm I'm going to paraphrase him here, so forgive me, uh, that the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are two, two train tracks that run parallel to one another, both leading to heaven and both leading to hell, never, ever intersecting with one another. You will go to heaven based purely 100% on the wonderful goodness and grace and mercy of God and God alone. Conversely, you will go straight to hell being 100% responsible for having been there in the first place. But the loving hand of God in this situation, the loving hand of God in Zacchaeus' life did not condemn him, but actually has great plans for his redemption. The sovereign hand of God guided and protected Zacchaeus, even in his sin choices, all to bring him to this moment right now. So in verse 4, in verse 4, our, our story here takes a rather interesting turn. This is, there's another story in the Bible that this one begins to, to parallel quite closely, but with a, a very, very different ending. You see, you've all heard to some degree or another the story of Adam and Eve, right? The, the mother and father of us all. But I'd like you to look at it with me again. Turn in your, your Bibles or on your apps to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, okay? So most of you know this story pretty well, so before your eyes start to glaze over, just stay with me, okay? Let me briefly recap this start part of the story for you. See, Eve at this point has been tempted by the serpent. She banters back and forth with him for a little while. The serpent tells her this huge whopper of a lie that, that God can't be trusted and that she should eat this fruit because somehow by eating this fruit she can become like God. And now the whole time, Adam is present, watching this takes place. He's, he's standing in the corner, sucking his thumb, doing Lord only knows what, but he doesn't say a single word to help her out. So we, we pick up our story here in verse 6. Look with me. In verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. Immediately, immediately they were acutely aware of their nakedness. Something had changed and it left them exposed to one another and to God. And not not in a good way. See, that's what sin does. It it puts barriers between us relationally as human humans and between us and God. 
We put, we put up walls to hide our shame and our guilt. And Jesus, or excuse me, just like Zacchaeus, our first parents immediately tried to hide their nakedness. Look at the rest of verse 7. It says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Do you see? Shame, something they had, they had never felt before, forces them into immediately hiding their most vulnerable of spaces from one another. Verse 8 tells us that they, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and listen to this, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Just like Zacchaeus, who heard that Jesus was coming, he hid himself in a tree. Now here's an interesting fact that seems entirely too coincidental to not mean something on some level here. See, the NIV version says that Zacchaeus climbed up a sycamore Fig tree. What leaves did Adam and Eve sew together to hide their nakedness again? I find it interesting that Zacchaeus chose that particular kind of tree. It could have been just the, the closest tree to Jesus' route through Jericho. That, that's one possibility. Or perhaps maybe there were other trees present and he chose this one for a specific reason. And I bet that if that were the case, that he chose this tree for a reason, it would be because of the way the sycamore trees, fig trees, their leaves grow together. Nice and thick. He thought that he would be able to hide himself and catch a glimpse of Jesus without being seen. Just like Adam and Eve hiding themselves from the presence of God, he was scared, even terrified of the judgment that the Lord was going to pass on him. See, Zacchaeus, he doesn't realize it yet, but he's about to have the fig leaves pulled back and be totally exposed with nowhere to run, just like Adam in the garden. But this time... This is where it gets good. This time, this time things are going to be different. Not because the what Zacchaeus worshipped was different. Don't get me wrong, different than Adam and Eve. No, that was still the same. They all worshipped themselves and they wanted to be like God, okay? They still wanted to sit on the throne of their own lives. Eve did this through the pursuit of the knowledge of good and evil to try and become like God. Zacchaeus tried to become like God through the pursuit of stuff and relationships that made them his functional savior. Through securing material possessions and treating people like commodities. See, Zacchaeus, like Eve, thought that that he knew better about how the universe worked than the God who created it. He thought his plans for his life would bring him happiness and ultimate satisfaction, but instead it left him totally alone, bitter, and angry. No, no, folks, this time the story was going to be different because God was coming to complete his plan of reconciliation and redemption for his people. The what that sat on the throne of Zacchaeus and Adam and Eve's lives was about to be confronted with the who sits on the throne of the entire universe. In Luke 19, verse 5, things are about to get extremely real for Zacchaeus. At this point, he's sitting in a tree, hiding comfortably in that sycamore tree, just like Adam and Eve did in the trees in the garden. And he thinks that, that Jesus isn't going to see him. He thinks he's going to be able to catch a glimpse at, from a place of safety and where he won't be exposed. And then it happens. Then Jesus, God in the flesh, comes by. Comes by that tree and calls him out just as God did all those millennia before with Adam and Eve. And I want you to see this picture of Zacchaeus right now. He's hiding in the tree. He doesn't want to be seen because he's terrified. Because if Jesus is, is who he thinks he is, if Jesus really is the Messiah, then he's God in a bod, Right? He's God made flesh. That means he's God and he knows things. Deep, personal, shameful things about Zacchaeus. See, Zacchaeus, he felt safe having this false sense of of, of a psychological barrier of these leaves between him and Jesus. He thought he could have the illusion of being able to keep something for Jesus. But Jesus sees right through all of our barriers and calls us out. 
And you have to know that Zacchaeus is freaking out on the inside right now, right? It's like, yo, he sees me. Oh, oh no, he sees me. He sees me. Oh, if he sees me, he knows. He knows about that thing and that time I did with that girl and that place and those drugs and that thing and that one party where, where things got really crazy. And just like Adam in the garden, when he heard the voice of the Lord calling to him, he hid naked and exposed, afraid of what judgment might await. Zacchaeus trembles. God is coming by the garden again. But this time it's different. Look with me in verse 5. He, Jesus, said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Zacchaeus and everybody watching, you've got you've to catch this picture, folks, okay? Everybody watching this is just salivating in the mouth, waiting for him to get his just desserts, right? The crowd expects Jesus to just let him have it and, and is going to call him down and just whip him apart from one end to the other. But much to Zacchaeus' elation and to the crowd's dismay, Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus embraces him as a brother and invites himself to lunch and dinner at Zach's house. Now, in order for you to get the gravity of what's happening here, you need to know a little bit about first century Jewish culture. First, to eat with someone was a big stinking deal. It was a huge deal. You didn't just go to somebody's house and be like, yo, I'm going to eat food with you and, and be cool, especially if they were a tax collector or a sinner. Okay? People, second thing you need to know is that Jews didn't hang out with unclean people, tax collectors or Gentiles or sinners. They believed that if you were clean and then touched something or someone that was defiled, you and yourself would become defiled too, spiritually and physically speaking. They weren't just afraid of getting sick. They were afraid of God pouring out his wrath upon them for associating with tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus isn't some Jewish carpenter. He's not just some good moral teacher. He's God in the flesh. He can't be defiled. He is holy and pure and set apart. The Bible calls him the, the firstborn among the dead. Jesus is different. And this is exactly why Jesus came to change everything to the way it should be. And you see, when Jesus touches something unclean, say with me, folks, when Jesus touches something unclean, that unclean thing becomes clean. When Jesus communes with someone that is defiled, someone that's been tortured, abused, uh, considered disgusting, thrown away like a worn out shoe, that person that's defiled becomes consecrated. They become new and holy and worthy of his affections. Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. Jesus forgives Zacchaeus and frees him of all he was terrified of being found out about. Jesus comes to his house, the text says. That word house is used several times in the New Testament, not just to describe like the physical dwelling, like this house that we're in today, but someone's actual soul house, their innermost dwelling where they keep their soul. This time, God and the body and the flesh comes walking by the garden, not to remove Zacchaeus from his presence, not to, not to kick him out, not to shun him away from him, but instead says, I'm making my home inside of you, Zacchaeus. No more chasm, no more barriers between us. I'm giving you the experience that I have had with God the Father and the Holy Spirit since before the dawn of time, before the existence of space and matter. Jesus makes him one with the Father. Jesus, he gets to walk in the cool of the garden with God. Zacchaeus gets to, to be in God's presence. Our one true and rightful home. Don't miss this, folks. Zacchaeus belongs. Zach's home now. For the first time, Zach's home. This reality, this reality hits Zach right in the face. 
This news elates and captivates him so much. So he, the, the verse six says, so he hurried down and came down and received him joyfully. The result of being free from the bondage of sin is immediate joyful obedience. Look at this. Zacchaeus is able now. He's able now to find joy in obedience. Why? Because obedience isn't something he has to do, but obedience is something that he gets to do. Zacchaeus isn't dragging his feet out of the tree going, okay, Jesus, I'll get there when I feel like it, man. No, it says he hurried down, he ran, he's happy about it. He has a new perspective. He knows now, he knows now that God's restrictions are God's protections. That God's commands are his blessings. The result of being set free from the bondage of sin is joyful obedience. Now, everybody here present watching this saw this. All the religious elites, all the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all the Israelites there, all the common folk, all the Romans, and all the nasty, dirty tax collectors and prostitutes. Look at me at verse 7. How do you think they reacted? It says, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. The people were groaning because Zacchaeus, before Zacchaeus came down, they were, they were just waiting for him to get it. But Jesus does the exact opposite. He accepts Zacchaeus and acts as though there's nothing to forgive, no recompense to be made whatsoever. You ever notice how God rarely, if ever, does what we think he's going to do? Or does things how we think he should do them? See, they don't, don't, don't miss the big picture here, folks. They miss the big picture. They don't know what Jesus knows. See, Jesus is on his last trip to Jerusalem. He is literally on his farewell tour of this earth. He is marching towards his death and subsequent resurrection in Israel, in in Jerusalem. Jesus is displaying for these people with Zacchaeus a living illustration of what he is about to do covenantally for the people of God in Jerusalem on the cross. At this point in history, there are two people groups, okay? Stay with me. You got the, the Jews, God's chosen people. And then you got the Gentiles, God's not chosen people, okay? And Zacchaeus, or excuse me, Jesus is doing through Zacchaeus here, what he is doing is he's implementing one of the first acts of the merger of these two peoples into one new people, the church of God. Do you see? The Jews thought that they deserved God's grace, blessing, and mercy more than Zacchaeus and the Gentiles because they were the chosen people. But Jesus, God in the flesh, is saying, that's not how it works anymore. I'm making a new deal. I am purchasing for myself Zacchaeus, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. I'm I'm purchasing all of the Gentiles. They belong to me now. They're part of our family now. These people are your brother and your sister, and you should embrace them. That wall that once divided us, boom, it's gone. I'm kicking it down. The sin thing that came between us that caused this great cosmic beef between us and Almighty God, that sin beef, squashed. It's done. Everybody's sin debt is being set back to zero. Jesus is fulfilling what he will later tell the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 21, verses 31 through 32. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John, John the Baptist, came in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. They, the Pharisees, the crowd They didn't see that the kingdom of God belongs not to those who keep the law perfectly. Not to those who were born into the right family. But to those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their redemption, their salvation. Jesus is changing everything, especially how we worship. 
See, the first century Jew is still heavily involved at this point in the sacrificial system. They spent all their time, all their day, securing food and sacrifices for the temple. They were completely consumed with securing a righteousness gained outside of the grace of God. But God does not work that way. And we can never make God owe us anything. All of God's gifts, all of them, folks, are gifts of grace. But Jesus comes in and changes the way we worship. We no longer work tirelessly to pay for a sin debt for which we could never fully atone and never fully pay off. We now have all those things in Jesus. Look at me at 1 John chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. It says that he is the propitiation for our sins. And not just our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Jesus is the perpetual satisfaction of our sins. God poured out all the wrath he had for sin upon Jesus. That's why Jesus came. To make right that which we made wrong. And to fulfill the entirety of the old sacrificial system. Jesus now comes and he moves us from the obsolete, empty, never-ceasing, never-ending worship of have-to sacrifices to a worship of get-to repentance. A worship that is no longer tireless and exhausting, but because we now worship Jesus, we spend all of our energy turning away from those other false gods and turning towards the way, the truth, and the life and resting in his finished work on the cross. What does that mean to repent and to to rest in Jesus' finished work on the cross? What does that even look like? Well, Zacchaeus, he paints us a pretty good picture of this. Look in verse 8. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. First, he submits to Christ's lordship and headship over his life. He recognizes that Jesus is the rightful ruler and reigner of his heart and his destiny forevermore. He says, Behold, Lord... From here on out, you are in charge of my life. I submit to your will, your way, your plans for my life. And the second thing he does, look at this. It says he gives. He gives the half of his goods to the poor. That's intense, isn't it? Zacchaeus runs home and all that stuff that he had placed all of his stock investor in, right? All of the things that he had just bit all of his hope in. He grabs half of it and says, here you go, guys. Don't need that junk anymore. I got Jesus now. That's intense, isn't it? Real repentance is always always radical it's always over the top because here's the crux folks here's here's the big big idea here's the big point he or she who has been forgiven much loves much when we realize how big the sin debt was that was hanging over our heads when we truly come to understand how wretched and depraved we are when we truly come to know how desperately we need Jesus, the only response we can give is radical repentance. Zacchaeus gave of himself his money, his personal pride. Look with me again. It says, and anyone I've defrauded, I restore fourfold. Look at the sentiment of that. He's more than willing to go above and beyond to make right that which he had made wrong. He's willing to do whatever it takes to bring about that radical reconciliation that Jesus just made with him with other people. The gospel reconciles all things. Jesus came to reconcile all things to himself. Reconciliation is a product, a proof of repentance. How do you think all those people, how do you think all those people in that town reacted to Zacchaeus in the coming days when he came by knocking on their doors? When he came by uh, restoring to them all the money he had stolen with them with interest? 
Zacchaeus took great financial losses in all this. He suffered great embarrassment. People probably never trusted him again. But there's one thing those people and we cannot deny about Zacchaeus, and that is that his life is no longer the same. Jesus changes everything for Zacchaeus, his life, his work, his relationships, and why he worships. Look at me in verse 9. It says, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. We worship Jesus because we are adopted into the family of God by what he has done on the cross. We now operate as sons and daughters in our father's house, heirs to the kingdom promises. And Jesus said to him, today is salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Jesus wasn't referring to Zacchaeus' Jewishness. Okay? He wasn't talking about that. Jesus was saying that since Zacchaeus has demonstrated repentance through his actions of giving and making restitution, that he has proven himself to truly be a son of Abraham. The things we do now are evidences. They're proof. The proof is in the pudding that our adoption into the family of God has been completed. We worship because we belong to Jesus. We worship because we are his. It's as simple as that. Can I get my communion workers to come up here, please? So now what? So in light of all that stuff that we just talked about, now what, right? See, we we worship because we've been bought with the blood. We've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. His blood that covers all shame, fear, guilt, envy, pride, lust, and greed now covers us. When God the Father looks at looks at you now and he looks at me, he no longer sees the wretched sinners that we were. When God the Father looks at Zacchaeus, he doesn't see Zach anymore. He sees Jesus. And his affections for his son are so aptly stirred. We aren't waiting for some far off distant, distant day in the future. Today, today salvation has come to this house. We are saved today and forevermore. Some of us, some of us here this morning need, need to be reminded of that fact. Some of you here this morning, some of you need to realize that fact for the very first time in your life. We all need to bathe in this new reality. All of us, in ways big and small, like Zacchaeus and Adam and Eve, try to cover ourselves with various fig leaves to hide our guilt, insecurities, and sin. Adam and Eve were acutely aware of the fact that they had been removed from God's divine presence in the garden. They spent every day from the moment they left, every day from that one, trying to secure a permanent way to cover their nakedness. A way that didn't leave a permanent barrier between themselves and God. God in His infinite mercy... See this. God in His infinite mercy granted them a picture of what it would look like, of what it would take to achieve the reconciliation that they so longed for. God spilled the first blood the world had ever experienced when God killed the animal to make their clothing. The world felt for the very first time the sting of death. And this First blood would be a shadow, a foretaste of the deliverance to come, pointing to the last blood, Jesus, that would ever need to be spilled to cover our nakedness, shame, and sins. 
And we gather here on Sunday morning not to, not to grasp at fig leaves, to try and cover our shamefulness, but as the body of Christ, we, we sing as one to celebrate the hero, king, and savior, Jesus, who purchased and redeemed us so that we never have to sew fig leaves together again. So that we could have the power to go back to that moment in time in the garden and to look the serpent in the eye and destroy him with the word of our testimony. The testimony that says that we have been ransomed, we have been restored, we have been redeemed, we have been made new by God. The testimony that says that God is good, He is always good, that He is trustworthy. We say to our accuser, to the accuser of our brothers, you now have been defeated by the word of our testimony and by the all-cleansing, all-powerful, thickly covering, costly blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And we come together at this table to celebrate the false gods of our lives being cast down off the throne by the true and the living God, Jesus. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus this morning, I, I invite you to do that. Right here, right now, go right ahead. Close your eyes and do so right now. It, it doesn't require some fancy prayer or for you to stand up and do the hokey pokey and turn yourself around. There's no holding your mouth just right. It's very simple. You do exactly what Zacchaeus did. Behold, Lord. Behold, Lord. I submit to you. I'm yours. Take it all. Have everything. That's it. Nothing special, nothing crazy. And then commit to coming here every single week for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, that's kind of nuts. Yeah. Commit to coming and being a part of the body of Christ, to submitting to Christ's lordship, through being a part of the body, exercising the gifts that God has endowed you with. To lovingly serve the community and the body of Christ here, to follow Jesus, to do as he did. And it might cost you some relationships. There might be some awkwardness between you and some, some family members or some friends. But Zacchaeus shows us that it was worth it. Totally, totally worth it. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ this morning, this table, it's not for you. Please stay seated. It's just, it's just a snack. It's juice and bread that I got from Sam's a couple weeks back. It's, there's nothing special about this. Nothing about this meal is going to make you holy. But for those of us in here who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, this table is a great celebration. It's a time that we come together and we celebrate what King Jesus has done. We celebrate all that he has done to ransom back the broken. The Apostle Paul gives us these words to help us celebrate what Jesus has done. He says, for I, what I received from the Lord, I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, I thank you, God, for... Your merciful gift of repentance, Lord. Thank you that in Jesus we already have every single thing that we need. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we have to love others because you have come and set us free from the bondage to sin and death. Thank you that because of your goodness, Lord, that we have gone from death 
to life. Thank you, Lord. Lord, come and help us by way of your Holy Spirit. Help us to leave this place and love people radically as we have been loved radically. To forgive as we have been forgiven radically, Lord. To help us reconcile as we have been radically reconciled, Lord. Holy Spirit, let us leave here today covered and drenched in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Beating back the lies of the darkness with the light of your truth. Thank you for being a good dad who gives good gifts to his kids. Thank you for the empowerment, the enablement that we have to love people radically through your Holy Spirit. Let your will be done in our hearts. Let your will be done in our lives, in our homes, in our communities. We all ask this as sons and daughters in the kingdom because of what Jesus did. And in the name of King Jesus, all God's people said, Amen. You may come and partake of the other. So tender is calling us home He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more Praise the Lord, His mercy is more darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is more what riches of kindness he lavished on us his blood was the payment his life was the cost we stood neath the debt we could never afford Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more Praise the Lord, His mercy is more Stronger than darkness, new every morn 
Our sins they are many, His mercy is more Our sins they are many, His mercy is more Awesome. If you would please stand, I'm going to give you a it's a tradition here at Northridge Lives now for us to, to give you a, a final benediction, a blessing to speak over you. So if you would please place your hands in a receiving position. Uh, I'm going to read over you uh, the words of Ezekiel from chapter 11, verses 17 through 20. And therefore, the Lord says, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel, the land of the people of God. And when they come there, they will remove from it all that is detestable, all the detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart, a new heart I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. Thus says the word of the Lord, you are dismissed. Tell about 10 to 15 people that you're happy you're here today. Okay? Love you guys. Thank you all.